Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In the first segment of today's program, we talk about the Alliance for Community Media. We'll hear from Tracy Rosenberg of Media Alliance, as well as Sue Busk from The Bus Group. They'll talk about the West Regional Conference March 30 to April 1 in San Jose. We'll talk about public educational and government access channels and the importance that community media centers play in our society, especially around issues of free speech, free expression, and a free press. Later in the program, we're joined by author Simki Kuznick. We'll talk about her new book, Holly Murray's Revolutionary Life. Holly Murray, an intersectional icon and civil rights activist, is a significant figure, yet many do not know about her important life. Today on the Project Censored Show, an hour about Alliance for Community Media and a pioneering civil rights icon. Stay with us. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today, in this segment, I am delighted to bring two media activist guests, experts, in fact, in community and public media. I am honored to welcome both Tracy Rosenberg and Sue Busk to the program today. Tracy Rosenberg has worked as Media Alliance's executive director since 2007. She's organized and advocated for a free, accountable, and accessible media system focusing on the protection and sustainability of alternative media outlets, monitored the mainstream media for accuracy and fair representation, and facilitated the training of numerous nonprofit organizations and citizens' groups in effective communications. Tracy blogs on media policy and is published frequently around the country. She currently sits on the board of the Alliance for Community Media Western Region, and we'll be talking about that conference today. Tracy serves on the anchor committees of the Media Justice Coalition and coordinates Oakland Privacy, the Bay Area Anti-Surveillance Coalition, and that's another show in and of itself. Such important work that you're doing, Tracy Rosenberg. Welcome to the Project Censored Show. Thank you for having me. It is a delight. And also to welcome Sue Busk, who began her career in PEG, which is Public Educational Government Access, PEG Access. You'll be hearing some of these acronyms today. 49 years ago, as fellow at the Alternate Media Center at New York University, working with documentary producer and social activist George Stoney. Sue is widely recognized as one of the leading experts in the United States on PEG access, local community programming, cable policy, and regulation. So if you can tell by that, we are going to be getting into some weeds and details today about these very important issues. Ms. Busk has helped to establish hundreds of PEG access community media centers during her career and provides organizational management and strategic planning advice. Sue Busk, welcome to the Project Censored Show. 
I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I could probably just get out of both of your ways and you could talk for the rest of the day about the many amazing things you're doing. But today, let's focus on the immediate. We, including myself, uh, are participating in the 2022 Alliance for Community Media West Region Conference and Trade Show. This is in San Jose. I'll let you talk more about that. The theme is Reemerge, Reconnect, Reenvision. Sue Busk, tell us about this conference. This is the first time since actually a week before we all shut down for COVID in February of 2020 that we've all been back together again to share, to talk about what's happened in the last two years with regard to community media centers. It just in general, as the theme of the conference sort of very well lays out, reemerge, reconnect, and re-envision. And there's a lot that's happened for community media centers in the last two years. And some of our opening keynote, for instance, was going to be all about how community media centers have become the conduit for local governments to get their public meetings out in Zoom, hybrid, how helping with uh, community health education and COVID education. But that's just to start. There's 15 workshops and lots of things. And both you and Tracy are a very important piece of, uh, of the folks who are going to come together and also going to get a chance to network and learn what's been happening. Folks can learn more at acmwest.org. And of course, Sue and Tracy, feel free to give any details where people can find out more information. I know that that we're involved in a Friday morning keynote. That would be Friday, April 1, 9 a.m. when hate speech collides with free speech. An awful lot to unpack there. But Tracy Rosenberg, let's bring you in here. I'm going to ask a, a rudimentary question at first. Can you explain for people out here that don't know or don't have one in their community, can you talk about community media centers and how significant they are? Absolutely. Community media centers, which are basically community-based public television channels are one of the very few things that media activists have ever been able to get from the industry for people. In 1984, the Cable Act required on a federal level that when cable companies get exclusive rights to the sort of cable infrastructure in cities, that they had to give something back. And what they have to give back is they have to give a quantity of channels anywhere from one to three for the use of local government, local educational institutions, and the public. So when we say pay, what we mean is governmental access channels, educational access channels, and public access channels. And some people are super familiar with these centers, they have all three, or they have a center that's doing all three functions. And in some cases, unfortunately, they may or may not be up and running in a given community, but they are, you're right, under federal law, the cable company has to provide them, and they have to provide money for these centers to operate, which is like one little part of the sort of mass communications puzzle that we could actually use for the public benefit. And as we all know, there is not much left. So it's an important function. Go ahead, Sue. And one of the things that people don't really realize, these channels in some places have been operating for almost 50 years. We were YouTube and social media before it ever existed. And it gets a little annoying sometimes when everybody thinks they're out on the cutting edge of all of that stuff. And some of us have been around and some of these community media centers have been around doing this work for 35, 40, 45 years, many times on a shoestring budget, but really engaging in creating the opportunity for people to speak their mind, 
for people to have debates, for people to have access to media tools. It's the kind of the ultimate in creating and trying to balance the media sphere for the community people and the average people in the community to have a voice. That's what PEG Access was created to be. And community media centers are just, we used to call them access TV stations, but now they're community media and technology centers. You know, I remember once upon a time in Berkeley, California, this is before we had the Project Censored show, I actually had a show on the Berkeley local channel. I believe it was run out of the high school and it had some really fascinating creative programming. The thing I want to point out most, and, and both of you can talk more about this, the commercial corporate media has basically exploded over the last half century in a way that it's really taken over and crowded out any real semblance or any notion that it serves the public interest. Could you, Sue and Tracy, could you comment a little bit on that in light of what makes PEG access so significant and so important? Well, I think there's two things to mention, and they work sort of contradictory to each other. The first is that we've seen, and I think this is all over the papers and people can acknowledge it for themselves, that we're suffering from more and more what we would call local news deserts. Whatever used to pass for the local paper isn't covering anything. It's not covering local government. It's not covering local school board meetings. It's not covering things that are actually going on in the town. And part of that reason is all the reporters have been laid off. Paper was bought by a hedge fund. And then we start to look at ownership and consolidation and the ways in which mass media really isn't locally based, doesn't have any ties to your local community and is owned by a corporation in Pittsburgh distant from where you are. So these channels become one of the few bulwarks that we have against what has been runaway media corporatization and consolidation. And when we talk about those bulwarks, we don't really have that much left. So their importance really becomes elevated because they have less and less competition. There's nobody out there doing what they're doing. Sue, let's bring you back in here. And so just to differentiate for our listeners, out of the 1960s came public broadcasting, NPR, these types of staples. How are these different? Number one, they're truly local. They're not a regional service. So you may have channels in Sacramento and different channels in Davis, as an example of California. You can be in New York City and you can have a different organization operating community channels in each of the boroughs. They're very, very concentrated and very local. The only funding that is available to them is funding that traditionally has come through the issuance of the cable franchise agreements that cable companies have to go to the city and they have to get permission to put their wires on the right of way. And part of the deal is based on federal law, they got to give something back. And that something becomes the channels and, and funding. Now that landscape has frankly changed a lot over the years because in some states, the local governments no longer have the right to negotiate locally and it becomes a statewide thing. But my point simply is, is the big difference is they're highly localized. They're hyper-local. They are not funded through any kind of federal money or state money. So this is the antidote in many ways to the news desert that Tracy was just talking about. We've seen more and more. We've seen more and more outlets closing all over the country in the last two years during COVID. 
that has really exacerbated what's already been a, a very challenging situation. Sue and Tracy, both before we get into more details about some of the legislative issues, some of the changes, and some of the things you're working toward, could you both tell us a little bit more about the ACM West Conference that's coming up here in Sue? Well, the Alliance for Community Media West is a division of our national parent organization, Alliance for Community Media, just for a little humor here. It was originally called the NFLCP, the National Federation of Local Cable Programmers, though we laughed and said it was the National Federation of Communist whatevers. Uh, but the point simply is we changed our name a long time ago. And um, this West region represents people in California, Nevada, Colorado, New Mexico, and Arizona. We have these conferences once a year, although we haven't had one since February 2020. And most of the folks who come are people who either use a community media center people who work there, people who are involved in, in very interested in what this is about. So we'll have probably about 150 people from those five states. Oh, I forgot, Hawaii. Hawaii is a very important part of our region. And we'll be covering a wide variety of topics from policy to practical, technical, IT, how to get more folks from every part of your community involved, i.e. digital inclusion and equity. Tracy, anything else you want to offer about the conference? I see there's a lot of workshops. Absolutely. I definitely encourage anyone to attend who is basically trying to talk about local events in their community on YouTube, on Vimeo, on the radio, because really the skill set and the concerns and the worries are very much the same, whether you are doing it as part of a peg or not. And in all honesty, we need to collaborate because distribution is kind of always the problem when you're small. And these are ways that we can really amplify and distribute good, independent, community-based content. And this is a very economical conference. It only costs a couple hundred dollars. There are scholarships. And so I encourage people to come check it out. And as an extra added benefit, you can watch Mickey and I on Friday morning, censorship versus disinformation. We both have strong opinions. They're partially compatible and partially not. So I think we're going to have a very animated conversation on a tricky subject. And one that I think is a broad general concern. I don't know anyone who isn't thinking about disinformation and censorship. We're going to talk about that after the break here. Just wanted to remind our listeners, you're tuned to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. I'm speaking with Tracy Rosenberg and Sue Busk. We're talking about the Alliance for Community Media and their regional conference that's coming up here. You can learn more at acmwest.org. Stay tuned. We'll continue our conversation after this brief musical break.
Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. I'm speaking with Tracy Rosenberg, who has worked at Media Alliance as the executive director since 2007. She's organized and advocated for a free, accountable, and accessible media system, focusing on the protection and sustainability of alternative media outlets, monitored the mainstream media for accuracy and fair representation, and facilitated the training of numerous nonprofit organizations and citizen groups in effective communications. We are also joined by Sue Busk, a long career in PEG or public education government access 49 years ago. We are talking today about the Alliance for Community Media West conference. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the details of that really important conversation when hate speech collides with free speech. That's the Friday morning plenary, April 1, 9 a.m. But then both with Sue Busk and Tracy Rosenberg, we're going to talk about something called DIVCA, the Digital Infrastructure and Video Competition Act of 2006. We're going to talk about something called AB 2635. We're going to be getting very specific about some important legislative measures and things that the public tends to not know much about, even though they are impacted so greatly. Sue Bus, can you tell us a little bit about how you see this conversation playing a major role in community media in general? We cannot avoid hearing the term misinformation, whether you're listening to coverage of Ukraine or something happening in your own backyard. And what we wanted to try to do with this panel is to first go back to the underpinnings and anchoring of what public education and government access was set up to be, which was frankly a free speech forum. Among other things, and frankly, in the early days, that free speech forum included having people like Metzger from the KKK on, on programs, created innumerable controversial issues. We had the naked guy in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It ran the gamut. But the concept was that people were there and had the opportunity to exer exercise the diversity of viewpoints. Well, now what's going on with social media? The whole world has changed enormously since that core principle that anchored PEG access was put in place. And now we are in a different world. We have Facebook. We have a million different social media outlets all putting out a lot of different things. And how do you, as number one, a citizen, sift through that? But also, how do you, as somebody who is responsible for running a community media center, make sure your media center operates consistent with the core principles, and at the same time deals with this explosion of information and how we deal with it. And of course, we won't solve all the problems in an hour and a half workshop, but simply stated, we thought it was an interesting topic to, to bounce around the room at nine o'clock in the morning. Well, indeed, I think it's important to model conversations about this because a lot of folks just they, as Tracy alluded to earlier, and Tracy, want to bring you back in here. Certainly, we on the panel have some strong opinions about these issues and censorship and free expression. And so do a lot of other people. But a lot of other people, they veer away from this kind of debate, discussion, conversation. I think Sue Busk, because it has a tendency to be very controversial, people are mindful about um where they're stepping, per se, right, as values and things change rapidly. Uh, some people are more up on these than others. Uh, some people are genuine bigots. Some people are careless. Some people are in the process of learning how to do better. It kind of runs the gamut around a lot of the sensitive issues we've been dealing with. You mentioned Ukraine, Russia, U.S., NATO. Certainly we could talk about COVID narratives. We could talk about the issues of structural racism, white supremacy, so many different things. 
Tracy Rosenberg. Let's bring you in here and let's talk about that. One of the recent books I just finished with Nolan Higdon is called Let's Agree to Disagree, which is actually a guide to critical thinking, communication, conflict management, critical media literacy. Talk a little bit about this, about the topic of this plenary and your views. Well, the plenary is basically focused on practitioners who are going to run into these concerns. People are going to call you and say, why did you play this? Why did you play that? This is disinformation. That shouldn't be on your station. Take it off. So the idea is what sort of basis on which we can make principled and ethical choices in this kind of thicket, because it's really hard. I think that Both Project Censored and Media Alliance have a pretty good sense of what the issues are and one that we largely agree on. The question becomes, what do you do about it? And Project Censored takes a very strong anti-censorship position. And my organization has all the same qualms about censorship and has some questions about, okay, if that's not the answer, then what is the answer? And I think that both the importance of critical media literacy as we talk about it, and also the practicality of a broad application of that in a country where it seems that we are not going in that direction very well. I mean, that's what causes me to hold my head and say, what are we going to do? So I think that we're going to, you know, talk that through and try to come up with some practical tips. So when people are confronting this in their daily job and their daily work, they have some tools for how to approach these kinds of questions. And another exciting thing that will be happening at the conference is we'll be talking about ACM's legislative efforts this year, which I am completely excited about because it's really the first time that we have done something like this as ACM, and we are walking into the thicket of a really bad law and trying to improve it. Let's transfer here. I'm definitely looking forward to the conversation at the plenary. And Sue Busk, if it's recorded, maybe we can even broadcast it on the Project Censored show in the future for our listeners, those that can't make the event. Tracy, you just opened up the can of worms that is DIVCA, Digital Infrastructure and Video Competition Act of 2000. And Sue, you mentioned a bill, an assembly bill earlier. Can the both of you unpack this for our listeners, first with DIVCA and then these reforms that you all are looking to? Sue? As you indicated, DIVCA was passed in 2006. It removed the authority of local governments to negotiate the agreements with the Comcast and the ATTs and use the wires to put the wires in the streets to do cable, internet, telephone, and moved it to state level. The bill is very pro-industry. We managed to preserve a few things in the bill in 2006, that there still has to be access channels and there still has to be a limited amount of funding. But there's a lot of problems with the bill. There's nearly enough consumer protection and the list goes on and on. What we are trying to do, and up until recently, until last year, really, that changing that law was the third rail. Nobody would touch it, but it got touched last year and the governor said, I want it touched more. I want it fixed. So we identified a very simple thing. And that is that right now, your community channels, the cable operators are not required to carry them in high definition, even though all the content is produced in high definition. And it looks like you're looking at a picture box when you watch the programming on the channel, or you can't read the open captioning, or you can't read the Excel spreadsheet on the city council meeting that's being projected. So that's what AB 2635 is all about. Simply allow us to be up to date and to have the content go on in the way it's actually created rather than being smooshed 
So what's the pushback here from the industry? Cable will absolutely be pushing back. When a law like this was passed in the state of Maine a year and a half ago, they went to federal court. And the good news is they lost. The state of Maine, DA, took them to court and basically said, these are consumer protections and I have a right to implement consumer protections. And the judge said, you're right. And he threw out the cable case. So that's why we're moving forward in California. We've got permission from the federal court. This is okay. And you can do this. And what we're basically targeting is two things. Because the stupid thing about DIFCA is it basically says cable codes can renew their state franchises, which is once every 10 years. It's not constant. And because we don't want to inconvenience the cable companies, it's like ministerial approval. Unless they are in violation of a non-appealable court order, they can have their franchise and that's it. You get it no matter what. No matter what the service quality problems are, no matter what the customer service problems are, no matter what the pricing issues are, no matter if you're literally degrading your public community channels and converting their signals so people can't see them, you can pretty much do anything. You can redline, it doesn't matter. And that's what we're trying to uncover and basically change. And we have two bills. One, AB 2035, is about this broadcasting the community channels so nobody can see them and they look like crap, which is just one of those petty things. So ABC looks beautiful and your local public access channel looks like crap. Which contributes to public interpretation of the quality of the broadcast is somehow connected to the quality of the information. AB 2748, which is also important, focuses on redlining and customer service quality and says these things matter. And before we reissue a franchise for 10 more years, we have the right to take a look at these things and to take that into account and to make some demands going forward. So these two bills together will basically take this bad law, DIVCA, and you put a bit of an ice pick through some of the worst parts of it. But cable is going to fight. We are going to need public support. And both Sue's organization and mine will be asking all of you out there to sign petitions or send an email. And we are hoping that when the time comes that you will do so. So Tracy Rosenberg, could you give a website or two for where people can learn more information or get involved or give that kind of support? These bills are brand new. They were just introduced last month. So the information will be coming to the websites, but it's not entirely up and running yet. But if you go to media-alliance.org, and if you sign up for the mailing list, we'll be sending you stuff and we'll have the blogs up pretty soon. You can also go to acmwest.org for information on the Alliance for Community Media. We're not here advocating necessarily that people get in touch to, to just support passage of something one way or the other. We're advocating that people become informed and aware of the very issues underlying these that the bills are actually addressing. Because I'm going to guess that uh, a lot of folks don't know some of the acronyms that we've been talking about, DIVCA, even PEG, etc., so I think it's really important for people to realize, particularly that we're in news deserts, particularly we have such extraordinary corporate dominance of the alleged people's airwaves. These are really serious issues, and they definitely involve diversity, equity, and inclusion issues in terms of media access. Sue Busk of the Busk Group, tell us a little bit more about how people can learn more about what you're doing, learn more about these very important issues. 
There's a number of ways. The Alliance for Community Media, which is a national organization, acm.org, to find more about these issues, uh, find out also more about a federal bill called the Protecting Community Television Act that we're trying to deal with and get it passed. Also, you can connect with your local community media center. If you were in a place where you've got a community media center, go over, even if you've never been involved, go over. Sometimes they're going to be located in a school location. Go over, introduce yourself, say hi. There's going to be a hearing, by the way, on AB 2635, at the California Assembly, and that'll be the first hearing and on that bill and as we move down the line. Also, we will be putting more information about just the educational pieces of all of this. Those of us who've been in the weeds, as I call it, the jungle of this for a long time, we have a whole set of language and tools in our tool belts, so to speak. A lot of people don't. And so part of what ACM is about, both in regional and national organizations, is to provide that kind of just basic information that folks don't know about. And you can get off the websites by coming to the conferences, by contacting maybe somebody who you know who does a local program that may run on one of the channels. Actually, some community media centers run low-power FM radio stations like in Davis, California. So it's all out there. And it's just a matter of us reaching to you and you guys reaching to us and being connecting people. This is what it's about anyway. It's what it's always been about from the very beginning. Well, Sue Busk, I hope that today, this segment on the Project Censored show, I hope that we've done a, a small part at trying to connect all these different groups. And I certainly know the conference is fantastic for that. So I'm honored that the both of you, Sue Busk and Tracy Rosenberg, were able to come on today to talk about these crucial issues. ACMWest.org is where you can learn more information. Sue Busk currently serves as president of the Alliance for Communication Democracy and the vice chair of Alliance for Community Media West Board of Directors, part of the Busk Group. And Tracy Rosenberg is the executive director of Media Alliance and also serves on the anchor committee of the Media Justice Coalition and coordinates Oakland Privacy, the San Francisco Bay Area Anti-Surveillance Coalition. Sue and Tracy, thank you for the important work that you both have done and continue to do and have been doing for so long. I'm really, again, honored that you came to share this with us on the Project Censored show, and I look forward to seeing you at the conference next week. Thank you so much. Thanks. You're listening to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Eleanor Goldfield will join us next week. Coming up next on the program, author Simki Kuznick joins us to talk about Holly Murray's revolutionary life. Stay with us.
Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment of the program, we are going to address a new book, Holly Murray's Revolutionary Life. This book is just out. It's by Simki Kuznick, S-I-M-K-I Kuznick, who grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area before she moved to Washington, D.C., where she had a long career as an editor for the U.S. government. Her writing focuses on what people with multicultural and multiracial heritage can bring to our understanding of what it is to be American. She edited a monthly newspaper, Poetry San Francisco, and was a founding member of Interracial Pride in Berkeley, California, while raising two daughters with her first husband, who is from Eritrea. She completed her MFA in Creative Writing at American University in 2010. Her poetry explores the interactions between cultures of Africa, Asia, and Eastern Europe. She and her husband, Peter Kuznick, co-author of The Untold History of the United States, live in Bethesda, Maryland, along with their numerous reptiles and amphibians. And Simke Kuznick, it is an honor to have you on the Project Censored show today. Great to be here. So this is a fascinating book that you have that just came out here this month that looks at the life and times of a really important person that I have to say that even as an historian, I knew very little of and was very delighted to learn so much about Holly Murray. And so I'm going to let you tell this story. This is what you tell in your book. Simke Kuznick, can you tell our listeners who exactly was Holly Murray? And let's talk about her revolutionary life. First off, how did you come to know about this really amazing historical person? It's actually the first thing most people ask me. I have to say it may be because it's really they're asking why is a white person like me? Well, how do I know about an obscure black woman that a lot of African-Americans don't know about also? And so it, it kind of goes back to I did a summer program in Ghana where Polly Murray also spent a year teaching constitutional law after the independence of Ghana. But I went there with a student group and we were building bricks for a schoolhouse. And it was with Operation Crossroads Africa, which was actually a prototype for the Peace Corps. And the group leader there was a fellow named Bart Rusev, an African-American from New Orleans of Creole heritage. And we became friends and over the years. And then I married uh, an Eritrean guy who that's a country right next to Ethiopia, in case people don't know, in East Africa. He had come here actually sponsored by a Peace Corps volunteer who had been in Eritrea. And we had a couple daughters and uh, we joined a group called Interracial Pride in Berkeley, California. And uh, Bartolome Rousseff, my friend from Crossroads Africa, knew that I had an interest in interracial families. So in, he gave me a book, uh, must have been 10 or 15 years later, a book that Pauli Murray had written. It's called Proud Shoes. She wrote it in 1956. And it tells about her very multiracial heritage going back to the 18th century. Her grandfather had fought in the Civil War. The grandfather's side of the family was from Pennsylvania. And her great-grandfather had been freed by a Quaker man. And so he was a um, the great-grandfather Fitzgerald was a free man of color, and he married a woman from a French family in Delaware. And they saved up about $1,600 at the time and bought land in Pennsylvania. 
and he and his family, they started a, a brick making business and they, they were involved in the Underground Railroad. And then his son enlisted almost three times in the Civil War. At first, they really weren't able to go in or they could only do supplies. They wouldn't let them have guns. And uh, there was just always a lot of discrimination. And then he was wounded. He was blind for a while, but he recovered. And then somehow he joined the Navy, went down to New Orleans. And so he had a lot of experience in the Civil War, but not exactly fighting. And then the family moved to Durham, North Carolina after the Civil War because they brought their brick making business to Durham. But they really went there because they wanted to teach and start schools for the uh, freed people to educate them. So there, the grandfather married a woman who had been a slave, and but she was raised up in the family of their white masters, she and her four sisters, but her mother was half Cherokee, but she also she was a slave, and there's two brothers who had never married in the family. It was a very wealthy family. Their ancestors, one of them was a congressman during Monroe's presidency, the brothers and the sister, none of them married. And one of the brothers, Sidney, raped Polly Murray's great-grandmother and had a child. And then the brother got upset, but he ended up having three more children with the great-grandmother himself and a different type of relationship. But then their sister actually raised the girls. They were four daughters in the house. And uh, although they obviously were not free, they used to go to the church that the family went to and they had to sit up in the pews in the, in the balcony. And she would always just say, they're my servant children or girls. So that's kind of the mixture of her, uh, Polly Murray's family that I found fascinating. Most uh, African-Americans kind of want to suppress. They don't usually talk about their slave background, especially if there's history of rape and people were kind of ashamed of it. But Polly Murray decided to tell the story and she actually went to archives and looked in the census to find out the truth about her family. Polly Murray died in the mid 80s, right? 1985. She lived from 1910 to 1985. So she died when she was 75. A period of remarkable historical transitions in the United States for African-Americans, people of color, women, and also LGBTQAI plus people. So in Polly Murray, we have a, a truly intersectional person that has an amazing life. Timothy Kuznick, could you talk to us a little bit about Polly Murray's life? I mean, just I don't want to just rattle off a list of bullet-pointed accomplishments necessarily. I'd like you to talk a little bit about it. But, I mean, again, I, I was very interested when I was reading this, teaching this kind of history. Again, I wasn't as familiar with Polly Murray. And you write here about so many amazing things that Murray was doing, protesting against Jim Crow, protesting against racism, was really very forward-thinking, way ahead of the curve in terms of major Supreme Court hearings. She goes through college is degreed, it becomes a lawyer. This is just a remarkable story. So Simki Kuznick, can you tell us a little bit more about Polly Murray? Well, one of the reasons why the book is kind of geared for young adults or teenagers was because I found some of her things she did just so inspiring. For instance, she 
drove to California one time. She didn't have a job and, and she thought she could have better prospects during the depression. And she went to California, but she had actually been raised by her aunt because both her parents died young because of lack of accessibility to medical care in both cases. So she was in California and then she got a telegram saying that her aunt was ill and she wanted her to come home to help take care of her. And Polly didn't have any money to get back. And her aunt was sometimes a little bit disciplinary, but she said, I'm, I can't send you the money because why did you go out there anyway or something, you know? But so Polly heard that one way to get back to the East Coast was to ride the trains. And this is during the Depression when the hobos and, you know, the young men were traveling, trying to find work. And Polly already uh, had been camping and she dressed as a boy. She used to dress in Boy Scout uniforms and, and uh, go hitchhiking with a girlfriend. So she was pretty intrepid that one time she went and they worked on farms, uh, you know, going out to the Midwest, uh, just traveling, this two, two women in their boyish outfits. And she dressed as a boy. She said she was small, so they thought she was just a teenager, even though she was in her 20s. And she had to climb aboard the train and, and escape the policemen who would club people, to, you know, if they caught them in the train yard. This was in like Oakland train yard that she started off. They were in a crate, an orange crate or something like that, and, and they, they stole the oranges and ate them in order to get, get to Chicago. And then she would like, she was outside with a group of guys with fires and they made soups that everybody brought up potatoes made the soups, but she finally made her way back to New York and the conductor on the train caught her there and couldn't believe what she was doing there. And he didn't believe that she was a girl because she sort of said, oh, I'm just a girl trying to get home, you know? And he said, you're not a girl. And he finally had a woman policeman come and pat her down and uh, realized she was a girl. And, you know, he let her go the last leg of the journey into New York City. So she did things like that. And then um, she was on a bus in Virginia in the forties and was arrested for not sitting in the back of the bus because the chair was broken and her friend uh, she was traveling with, a woman, you know, had a back problem. And there was a lot of seats in the front before the white people were even sitting, but still they wouldn't let them move up one seat to get a better seat. And they were arrested. Since they had to spend a couple nights in jail, she trained some of the inmates in Gandhian principles that she had learned and, and managed to get them cleaner towels and things and soaps that they didn't have before. And so she was active, you know, in whatever place she found herself. But the NAACP, didn't, she had different cases. One was to try to get into the University of North Carolina Graduate School. And the NAACP didn't take up her case a lot of times. And it was sort of unclear why. They wouldn't exactly tell her maybe the truth, but she had girlfriends. There may have been rumors that she was a lesbian and she had been in the hospital with mental breakdowns sometimes, which later from her private papers we found because they were broken love affairs and also concern over her gender identity because she actually felt like she really ought to be a man 
And she confided in this, her, her aunt knew about her propensity. Her aunt called her my boy girl, um, you know, child. And, um, you know, early on, she wanted to wear boys jackets and hats, leather hats, you know, and, uh, um, so she had exhibited wanting to be a boy even as a child. Also, she had worked for a travel agency one time. And it was funny because they said they wanted someone who didn't have an accent or something, which meant no Black person or Southern accent or something. But she was able to get by and she was hired for a tourist agency that took people to Soviet Russia. And that was a Black mark on her resume. The FBI had been looking into her. So I guess if the NAACP really looked at her background, she wasn't squeaky clean like Rosa Parks. So I think that might be part of why she's not well known. We can talk a little bit more about that. I just want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with author Simke Kuznick. We're talking about a new book, a biography, Polly Murray's Revolutionary Life. We'll continue our conversation with Simke Kuznick after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment today, we're joined by author Simki Kuznick, S-I-M-K-I Kuznick. We're speaking about a new book that just came out. It's a biography, Polly Murray's Revolutionary Life. And uh, in this first part here, the first half of our, our conversation today with Simki Kuznick, we've been learning about how Simki came to know Polly Murray's life and work and also now we're talking about Polly Murray's life in general, an amazing intersectional activist before that kind of uh, terminology or language was even around. And we just before the break, Simke Kuznick, you were telling us about the really radical tendencies that Polly Murray exhibited and in fact was maybe too radical for some of the major institutions of the day that you'd think would maybe line up. You had talked about the NAACP, the ACLU. You mentioned Polly Murray's many different activist campaigns, if you will. And again, you point out in your book, you point out that Polly Murray was maybe like other people that we don't hear a lot about. We hear about the Rosa Parks, we hear about the Martin Luther Kings, but what we don't hear about is the many, 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 many people, even generations of people, that really worked so hard on issues like desegregation, for example, and worked so hard to get access for blacks, for women, for other marginalized communities in colleges, schools, law schools. In many cases, again, Polly Murray is, is an extraordinary revolutionary character, and you're telling that story in this book. Can you tell us a little bit more about Polly Murray's life and, and some of the other things that she did, including organizing protests at Howard University, protesting against segregated restaurants? You talk a lot about this, and even the pointing of the term Jane Crow, which was a very, very fascinating story. Can you talk more about that, Simke Kuznick? That was all happening around Howard University, and she had been 
down south trying to raise money for a case of a sharecropper, Odell Waller, who had killed the owner of the property that who wanted to steal his land or the crops that he had nurtured. She was trying to raise money and Thurgood Marshall was in the room one time when she was giving a speech and he said, that was a good argument. You should, you should be a lawyer. Why don't you come to Howard Law School? So she did. She was like one of very few women in, in the school. And it was there that she had a lot of discrimination. The teachers, professors would make fun of why are the women even in the class? And she actually, at the time, thought her voice was too soft. She wanted to have a lower voice because she saw that the men could jump into the conversations and she hardly ever got a chance to talk. And that irked her quite a bit. And they said, Something like, well, you know, you'll never do that well. And that was the thing that said, well, I've got to be at the top of my class then, you know, because I'm not going to take that. So she actually, she, um, it was like being valedictorian. She was at the top of the class, which meant she would be elected to the court of peers. Well, that was her second year, I think. And they actually, the next year, they disbanded it. They said, oh, we're not going to do that right now because <laughs> they didn't want to have a woman be in the head of the court of peers. So I think that's probably where she got the idea of Jane Crow. But she also, when she graduated, she gave a speech there and talked about how separate cannot be equal. So she with the Plessy uh, case and then with the 14th Amendment, and she wrote that up. But uh, eventually, the essay that she wrote about that for Howard was used in Brown versus Board of Education. They referenced her sources and arguments about that. So that was one major thing that was just not well known. She wasn't really given credit for that. But it was a germ of an idea that she had ahead of her time. And I think even the professor said, yeah, maybe in 25 years, they'll get rid of that law. And it happened within 10 years, actually. That's amazing. And she also, you mentioned Jane Crow, again, back to more intersectional issues, mixed race, person of color, woman, also not acknowledging, I think you write, not acknowledging outwardly that she was queer or lesbian, but obviously that was part of her identity and her struggle in a society that didn't recognize any of that as being seen as legitimate, right? Or seen as mainstreamed. So after she was a lawyer, she wasn't always able to work as a lawyer, but she did get a job at Lloyd Garrison and Weiss, or anyway, it was a law firm that the grandson of Lloyd Garrison, the abolitionist was in. Actually, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, worked there as an intern the summer that when Pauli Murray was there. So they sort of met in the hall or so they didn't really know each other. But then later, as Pauli Murray was researching women's issues, she wrote a brief that Ruth Bader Ginsburg acknowledged co-authorship for the ideas that, that Pauli Murray had put forward. It's the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment which then was decided to prohibit gender discrimination as well as racial discrimination. So that's another case where she was kind of ahead of her time. At least Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, gave her credit for that idea, one woman to another, I think. It's really amazing the people that Polly Murray crossed paths with. We haven't even mentioned Eleanor Roosevelt yet. Please do, Simki Kuznick. Tell us a little bit more about this from Eleanor Roosevelt to helping found the National Organization of Women. I mean, there's there's still more to tell. 
Well, she always said one person and a typewriter can start a movement. So she wrote a letter to Eleanor Roosevelt trying to get the attention of President Roosevelt, I think. It was during World War II and about how can you put the Japanese into internment camps and you might as well uh, be putting Blacks in internment camps. She would just question everything. And Eleanor called her in to have tea, I think, to meet her. And they formed a friendship. And there's a book about it by Patricia Bell Griffiths, I think called the firebrand and the first lady because Eleanor called Polly Murray a firebrand. And they worked together on various things with the United Nations student program after World War II and developing human rights. And she used to invite her to her estate up in New York. And just generally, they just were good, good friends. It's fascinating, Simpy Kuznick, that every chapter you're learning about more people, more paths. You write always ahead of her time, Polly Murray, decades ahead of her time. You write neglected, overlooked, unrecognized, and you write Polly Murray's time is now. You were trying to do things with this book, with this manuscript during the Obama presidency? Yes, I tried to publish it. I was put in touch with even African-American editors at big publishing houses. And um, they said, wow, what a fascinating story, but no one's ever heard of her. So it's not going to sell. But finally, I found an independent publisher, which I'm happy with, Rootstock Publishing in Vermont. And the publisher's said his wife knew all about Polly Murray because his wife was a feminist and knew about how Polly Murray had been a co-founder of NOW. And she had been appointed on the commission that President Kennedy had, the Commission on Women's Rights. So that group, they realized that it, there wasn't a real advocacy for women through this government organization. They felt that they need kind of a lobbying group outside the government to pressure the government to do more. So there was a conference that happened with Betty Friedan, and, and then they all got together at the end of the conference. They were very disappointed that things weren't happening, and so they all got together and, and just decided to start a group called NOW, National Organization for Women. Talk about, again, major influence on not just civil rights, but more broadly human rights. It seemed that Polly Murray was really revolutionary in that regard. And then she went on, she taught at Brandeis University. She got a JD at Yale. She went to Ghana, but because her lover had died, she discovered a, a spiritual bent. She and her friend had gone to Episcopal Church over the years. So Polly Murray actually went to theology school and became one of the first six women to be ordained in the Episcopal Church. And one thing she writes, she says, all the strands of my life had come together. Descendant of slave and of slave owner, I had already been called to be a poet, lawyer, teacher, and friend. Now I am empowered to minister the sacrament of one in whom there is no north or south, no black or white, no male or female, only the spirit of love and reconciliation drawing us all toward the goal of human wholeness. That's really amazing, Simki Kuznick. Could you tell our listeners where might they find out more about you, your work, and where can they get this book, Polly Murray's Revolutionary Life? You can get the book at your favorite indie bookstore first, or Rootstock Publishing also directly. And my website, not very developed, but it's simkeykuznick.com. 
S-I-M-K-I-K-U-Z-N-I-C-K.com. Well, thanks so much, Simki Kuznick, for taking time out of your schedule to talk with us about this really fascinating book about this amazing person. And you write that Holly Murray influenced the cause of human rights for all people, leaving behind a lasting legacy. And indeed, what a legacy it is. Thanks so much for documenting this, and thanks for sharing it with us on the Project Censored Show today. Thanks, Mickey. You've been listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio, established in 2010 by myself and Peter Phillips. I'm Mickey Huff, the executive producer and host of the program. Anthony Fest is our longtime senior producer. The Project Censored Show airs on roughly 50 stations around the United States from Maui to New York. To learn more about our work or find any of our previous archive programs, go to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your cell phone's podcast application. Please feel free to share your feedback about our work at projectcensored.org. And last but not least, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Stay well. We'll see you next time. Unthinkable crimes perpetrated by the criminal minds political ties, habitualized alibis, disguised another guise of democracy, politics of the apocalypse, got the skies like an ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufacture paid for by taxing while the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons build the capacity citizens. And the times for the master thief, combine and conquer, steal the masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Times running out the reach, all potential fame at the table, then you're probably on the menu. We got that love of the brothers and